people to set our eyes in the right direction for the message this morning. We return again to Philippians chapter 2. We've already read this morning from Matthew's gospel, the birth narrative of Jesus. Now in Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us more about this Christ. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there in Philippians, Paul is taking God and bring in and demonstrating for us, teaching us how God has taken human form. Flip over to Colossians, where Colossians chapter 1, where Paul now takes Christ and shows us how this Christ is God. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, and visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you once again, falling on our faces before the God that you are. We praise you for your grace. We praise you for your mercy. We praise you for your holiness. We praise you for all of your perfections. And again, we are astounded that what is man that you would be mindful of us so much so that you sent your son to die for us. And this Christmas season is a, the, the time in the calendar where we, we, we focus upon the incarnation of Christ. Father, I pray that as we continue through the sermon series, you would help us come to a greater understanding, a greater clarity of the incarnation, of just who Jesus of Nazareth is. That, Father, we might be more diligent worshipers, more faithful worshipers, more Christ-centered and Christocentric in our theology and in our living and in our praying and in our responding to suffering, that as Christ gets bigger and bigger and bigger to us, Father, He would be everything to us. Father, we do confess we're but needy children. We do tend to drift away from Christ to other things, other idols, other lovers. Father, today, would you be pleased to speak to our hearts more of the wonder of the, the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the, the majesty of his incarnation. Overwhelm us. Confuse us. Bring us to a point to where it's more than we can take because then we're coming nearer to a right understanding. And help us to live in light of who Christ is and what He did. If there be anyone among us who has never surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, and King, and treasure, Father, would you be pleased to honor yourself and glorify your Son in the salvation of that soul? Show us Christ, we pray. Send your Spirit to open our eyes 
No sermon can do it. No man can do it. We cry out for the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, I remind you, the title of this Advent sermon we're going through right now is The, 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 the Majesty of the Incarnation. And if you think back to where we've been for the last couple of weeks, we've spent two weeks in this sermon series on the Incarnation, and we haven't even gotten to Jesus yet. On this, this Advent series, we've spent the first two weeks studying the doctrine of God. Answering the question, who is God? Because if we're going to understand the God-man, you've got to first have a right understanding of who God is. And so that's what we've given ourselves to for the last couple of weeks. Since the first Sunday in December, we have given ourselves to studying the nature of God and the perfections of God. We have seen and confessed that there is only one true God, and He is incomprehensible. <laughs> you can't know Him. You can't know Him fully, that is. You can know Him truly because the incomprehensible God, whom we could never know, has made Himself known to us. He's not made himself known to us exhaustively. He's not made himself known to us fully. We would explode if he were to do that. Literally explode. You and I would melt like wax. I think even before the propositions themselves of the true glory and greatness of God. But this incomprehensible God has revealed himself to us in ways that we can know him truly. And among the things we've God has revealed about Himself is that He is one true God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even that is, speaks to the incomprehensibility of God, doesn't it? Because who among us has figured out the Trinity? Who among us? We spent quite a bit of time in that first sermon going through Augustine's quote, a man who studied the Trinity in greater depth than probably anyone in history, and yet he himself has to throw up his hands. We've also seen about the nature of God. He's a most pure spirit. He's not body. He doesn't have a body. He's a spirit. He's not like us. He doesn't have emotions. doesn't have a sense of humor. He is not like us. Nothing like us. He's self-existent. Again, not like us. He had no beginning. He'll have no end. He needs nothing. He wasn't lonely in heaven and thought, well, let me create a bunch of friends to keep me occupied. He's infinite, boundless without limits in his power and his knowledge and his presence. We spent a bulk amount of time exploring these attributes. God is unchanging. God is simple, which sounds contradictory to being incomprehensible. Simple meaning you and I are complex. We are made up of body and spirit. Christ, our God, just is. He just is. You can't take him apart and say, well, he's part holy, he's part righteous, he's part wrath, he's part... No, you take any one part. He is all of those things perfectly intertwined. He's simple. And then last week we began looking at some of the perfections of God. And among them we spoke about His goodness, His holiness, and His righteousness. I finished both of those messages by assuming by the looks on your faces and at least what I was trying to achieve in those messages that I probably left you confused in a lot of ways. Probably overwhelmed. Probably feeling like, well, my goodness, can I ever know this God? To which again I said to you, Good. Good. Because the moment you and I get comfortable in thinking that we have figured God out, you can bank on it. In that moment, your heart and mind is so full of pride, you don't know God at all. You may know right things about God, but you don't know this God if there ever comes a time that we are comfortable with Him. He is so far beyond us. So far beyond anything we could think. But the few points we were able to make 
were given in order to set our minds in the right direction. We couldn't say everything there is to say about God or everything He's revealed, but just we, we needed to get our minds moving in the right direction, thinking right, true, majestic, glorious, weighty thoughts about God. And those thoughts were intended to prepare us to finally today begin thinking about Jesus. To begin thinking about the God-man. Because if you're you're going to think about the God-man rightly, you have to begin with God. You have to begin with right thoughts about God. Thoughts about God that are correct, that are precise, that are clear. Not because you know them all, but if you're going to understand the weight and the gravity of the, the, the incarnation of who Jesus of Nazareth is, you've got to begin with God. Otherwise, you'll feel comfortable making a Jesus of your own imagination. You will treasure Christ only to the extent of your highest thoughts of God. Well, yeah, he's the God's man. And here's what I know about God. That's insufficient. To love Christ the way God loves him. You've got to know him the way God knows him, or at least as near as God allows us to get to that. So we've got to have a high view of God so that when God takes on the flesh, who that baby is is not here, it's here. And that's what we've been giving ourselves to the last couple of weeks. And now, not because we know things perfectly, but because prayerfully our hearts and minds are moving in the right direction with regard to God, now we can turn our attention to the wonder of the incarnation. What we read this morning from Matthew's Gospel. We're now ready to think about Jesus, not as He existed as the Father from all eternity, but as God come to live and dwell among us. Now we can begin thinking about the Immaculate Conception, which is what we read in Matthew's Gospel this morning when the angel said to Joseph, the Holy Spirit has given this baby. It wasn't Mary and Joseph who came together to have this baby. It was the Holy Spirit of God who put this child in Mary's womb. Now we're able to begin to set our eyes upon that babe in the manger. Now we're at a place to begin to fix our thoughts on the baby who grew into a man, who lived, who suffered, who died, who raised again on the third day to earn our salvation. Now I want to throw this out there because not that anyone has said this, and as I look around the room, I don't think anyone in this room would say these things, but this is the spirit of our age. So I want to address it. There are some who I suspect hear a sermon series like this and would... Oh, come on. Just read the birth narrative. Just, let, just read it, and I already know great things about Jesus. Just let it be. Good gracious, Jake. Too much detail. This is too much. Too much. Let it alone. Just let the text speak for itself. Here's what we know about Jesus. I know God. I love Jesus. Let's just get to it. Too much detail. Now again, no one has said these things. And I don't think anyone in this group would. You've been with me long enough now. You've probably come to expect things like this. But there are certainly some who would object. Who would say, I have God. I have Jesus. I don't care about these details, to which I would say is a massive problem. Let's imagine, if you will, for a moment, a a grandfather and a young grandson. An elderly grandfather and a young grandson who's just now coming of age to be able to spend time with his grandfather, just now being able to go places with his grandfather and spend time with his grandfather, but... Surprisingly, unbeknownst to anyone, the grandfather's sick and passes away while the child is still a young child. Imagine one day the child who's grown up a bit goes to grandma and says, I've got these memories of granddad, but I want to know more. Tell me more. I I remember great times we had. I remember specific things we did. Here's my memory, but I want to know more. Could you imagine as the grandmother is telling that grandson details about her husband, about his grandfather, 
that at some point the grandson says, stop, grandma, enough's enough, enough detail. I don't want all this, never mind, I'm sorry I asked. Could you, if, if a grandson truly loved the grandfather, doesn't he want to know everything? Well, the same thing comes w- with God. When we begin the Christian life, we have a basic understanding of who God is, of who Christ is. You have to have some core knowledge in order to become a Christian, to repent of your sins. You have to know the holiness of God. You have to know your fallenness. You have to know the redeeming person and work of Jesus Christ. You don't know everything perfectly, but you have to have a core knowledge in order to become a Christian. Our knowledge at that point is very limited. It's very skewed. It's very nominal. But our knowledge is true. Could you, would it ever be acceptable for someone who professes to love Jesus to say, but I know enough. I don't need all the detail. I don't care. I'll save that for the seminary professors and the the, the PhDs in, in theology. I don't care. That's contradictory to who God has made a Christian to be. We've been saved to live unto God, to know God, to serve Him, to walk with Him, to fellowship, to obey Him. We must know Him. We must explore the fullness of who He is. This is what Paul expects from the church at Ephesus. Listen to the prayer that he prays in Ephesians chapter 1. This is a prayer that would be prayed over every congregation. Paul says, therefore, I also... After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And here's this prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Well, they already have been given the spirit of wisdom and knowledge of Him. What's he getting at? There's more to know. There's more to know. And he goes on to pray that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. His prayer is that the church would grow in wisdom and in knowledge of God and of Christ. And that's our prayer for Covenant Life Church. For me, for you, that each one of you would not arrive at a place to where you feel like, all right, I've got enough. No, I know there's more to know, but I, I know enough. That's a bad sign. If you find that kind of a complacency in your soul, there is every reason to pause and say, what's going on in here? Where's that hunger and thirst? As a deer pants for water, so my soul longeth after you, O God. Why have I quit thirsting after God? Our prayer is that we would continue until the day we die, growing in wisdom and knowledge of God and of His Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. This sermon series is intended not to make Christmas more just dry and dull and theological, but to make Christ in your heart more true to to who He is. That your worship and life lived unto Him would reflect the majesty of the incarnation. That's why we're taking time to focus upon first the doctrine of God. If you're going to worship the God-man rightly, you've got to first have right thoughts of God. The question we're asking today is, well, what are we to think about Jesus? How are we to talk about Him? Who is He exactly? What is He? What is His nature like? Five things this morning that we'll be brief on. Five things to be said about Jesus. They come out of the overflow of where we've been, looking at the nature of God and the perfections of God. And now, 
as the God-man takes on flesh, what can we say about him? Number one, the first thing to be said is that Jesus is divine. First of all, all throughout scriptures, Jesus is called God. Now again, the caveat I give you every week, there's not a one of you in here that doesn't already know that. But when was the last time as you were reading God's word, tracing the life of Jesus, you were trembling under the weight of your understanding as Jesus is, as you're tracing his footsteps and navigating his ministry. When was the last time you trembled under the weight of your following God? Many scriptures could be referenced in order to support that Jesus is God. Just a few will suffice. Jeremiah chapter 23. We read this prophecy regarding the coming of the Messiah. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. The Old Testament prophecies predicting the come of the Messiah will be the Lord, will be God, our righteousness. In Romans chapter 9, Paul says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God. Blessed forever. Amen. Paul knew when he was preaching Christ that Christ was God. And then one of the more obvious ones is when Thomas called, uh, was called by the risen Lord to come and touch. Remember doubting Thomas? Come and touch his wounds. Do you remember how he referred to Jesus after doing so? My Lord and my God. He himself called Jesus God and wasn't rebuked for doing so. Jesus acknowledged he was right. Jesus is called God all throughout Scripture. The second thing I would draw your attention to under this point. Jesus is said to be eternal, omniscient, omnipotent. Now what do we know those are the perfections of? God himself. We saw last week and we explored some of the, or, or week before last, as we talked about the nature of God, the, uh, the limitlessness of God with regard to His knowledge, His power, and His presence. Jesus of Nazareth is given the exact same attributes. Jesus claims to be eternal in John chapter 8. Truly, I say, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What's He saying? I was there before Abraham. You've seen me in the flesh for some 30, 31, 32, 33 years. That's not my lifespan. Before that old patriarch Abraham was, I was there. His omniscience is highlighted in Revelation chapter 2 when he claims to be the one who searches mind and heart, giving to each one according to their works. How else does he give? How does he give according to their works unless he knows? We've also seen this in our study of John's gospel, right? The, the closing verses of John chapter 2. As Jesus has begun his public ministry, many are giving themselves to Jesus. But then what does John tell us? John, Jesus does not give himself to them. He doesn't give himself to them savingly. Why? That's so mean. That's so cruel. What does John explain? He knows what's in their heart. Well, how does he know what's in their hearts? I can't know what's in your heart. You can't know what's in mine. Only the all-knowing God can read hearts. And Jesus is God. His omnipotence is mentioned in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says, The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. How in the world do you subject 
all things to yourself. Do you have the ability to do that? To bring all things in life. Don't you wish you had this? To bring it under your rule. You can take everything and I rule over it. What would it take to do that? You've got to have power over everything to subdue it, to bring it under your authority, to take charge of it and says, I am your God. You belong to me. You will serve me. You've got to have omnipotent power, to which Paul says, that's what Jesus possesses. So the attributes of God that we've seen over the last couple of weeks, Scripture places those upon Jesus. A third thing under this same first point, that Jesus is divine. It's Jesus who is said to have created the heavens and the earth. Now, we've talked about this before, but I always find it interesting. Has that resonated with you yet? That the triune God who existed before the foundation of the world and in the fullness of time brought all things into existence. We often think it was the Father who created. That's not true. Theologically, if we're going to be clear, if we're going to be precise, it was the second person of the Trinity. It's Jesus who created all things. John 1.3 says, All things were made through Him. He's talking about the Word there, Jesus. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the Creator. Paul says it in a more beautiful way in the passage we read this morning from Colossians chapter 1. He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, those things visible, those things invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him, that's by Him, and for Him. And oh, by the way, and through Him all things exist. All things hold together. Paul says. So he created all things and the very fact that right now the the solar system is not just going you know, just kind of doing its own thing and that we ourselves are not just what's holding us together is Christ, the creator. And a fourth thing we can say about Jesus of Nazareth being God himself is that throughout Jesus' ministry, it's Jesus who is to be honored, worshipped, believed, feared, served. When God has clearly said, only fear me, only serve me. Those are things that only God deserves. But when Jesus is in his public ministry, Jesus is treated likewise. Why? What's the message? He's God. John 5 Jesus says these words, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son. Now wait just a second. I remember clearly God saying, I am a jealous God. I don't share my glory with another. And yet here, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgments to the Son. Why? that all may honor the Son. Either God's a liar, He's not jealous, He does share His glory, or what? Jesus is God. And it's not a sharing of His glory with another. When you glorify the Son, you glorify the Father. Why? Because the Son and the Father are one. In Hebrews 1, we learn that all of God's angels worship Jesus. In Revelation chapter 5, John tells that He heard every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped him. Who? Christ. I thought God alone is to be worshipped. He is. And because Jesus is God, When you worship Jesus, you worship God. What's the message of these things? Jesus of Nazareth, that that baby born in the manger, is God. 
we have talked about in recent weeks. God himself being incomprehensible, unknowable. We can know him truly because he has told us true things about himself, but we cannot know him fully. Why? It's too much. The smartest person who's ever lived, who by God's grace has their heart and mind have been transformed to love him, and has that person who has given themselves to the study of God whether it be Augustine or, or an R.C. Sproul or, or these great theologians. And they write these compendium of books. With God's help, what they write is true. And if you're blown away by that, it's nothing compared to the fullness. Nothing. And yet we have read twice this morning in Colossians. In that baby, in Jesus of Nazareth, the fullness of God was there. Oh, beloved, how little have we thought about Jesus, about who he is. Fullness of God. Now that, you're probably, some of you may be sitting there shrugging your shoulders. I don't get what you're saying. Then you've got to go back to God. You've got to understand what it means about the fullness of God and to understand that now in the incarnation, this is the majesty of it. The fullness of God that we will spend all of eternity exploring in Jesus of Nazareth. In all of its limitlessness, its Bound up. And even that's a contradiction, isn't it? You can't bind something that's limitless. But in Christ, the fullness of God was there. That's the majesty of the incarnation. Secondly, not only Jesus is divine, Jesus is human. This is the second thing we'll say about Jesus. Over and over throughout Scripture, Jesus is called a man. Romans chapter 5. Paul says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespasses, who's that man? Adam, thank you. As all died, many died through one man's trespasses, Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of God that one man, Jesus Christ, comes and abounds for many. So all die through one man, but life comes to some through another man, a second Adam, if you will. And Paul names him. There's no mystery here. That man is Jesus. Another aspect of Jesus' humanity is the recognition that Jesus had a human body, which this is fantastic. This, again, plays into the majesty of the incarnation. What did we say about God himself? Body or no body? No body, not nobody, but no body. He's spirit. But in Hebrews chapter 2, we read, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's speaking of Christ, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Partook of the same things. What things? Well, the context is telling us. Like the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things. What things? Flesh and blood. He took on flesh and blood. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus spoke to his disciples saying, See my hands and my feet. That is, I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. This is post-resurrection, but Jesus is drawing attention to what? His physical body. Touch me, see me. God who is the perfect truest spirit takes on human form. A third aspect of this, the humanity of Jesus, not only that it had a body, but here's another aspect of humanity that oftentimes is overlooked. He had a soul. If we talk about the, the nature of man, we are dichotomous beings. We're made up of body and soul. Likewise, when Jesus had the body of man, he also had the soul of man. He wouldn't have been human, did he not have that? 
He had death. And Jesus says to his disciples in the garden, Matthew chapter 26, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. What's he doing? He's praying there in the garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. My soul, he's human, is sorrowful even to death. Another aspect of Jesus' humanity, he suffered the same trials we do. We as human beings get hungry. Matthew chapter 4 tells Jesus was hungry. We get thirsty. John chapter 19, John chapter 4. As we looked at Jesus with the woman on the well, with the woman at the well, Jesus gets thirsty. Man gets sorrowful. Jesus was sorrowful. You and I as humans, we weep. Jesus wept. We get glad. Jesus was glad. Jesus was tired. Just because he was divine, and he was divine, didn't mean that he therefore didn't experience all the fullness of human things. He did because he's truly human. And I think probably the, the most theological of the ways we know that Jesus was human is that Jesus was born of a woman, the seed of a woman, speaking of Genesis chapter 3, right? Uh, the curses that were laid out upon all humanity, upon Satan because of our sin against God. But there was also a promise, there was a grace in the midst of those curses that the woman would bear a child, a seed of the woman, who would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, which we sang about in that old, old hymn, the second song we sang this morning. The point there in Genesis is foreshadowing a, a human is going to come, a seed of the woman, a child is going to come. And so it was with Jesus, born of a woman, Mary. The Old Testament foreshadowed it. Salvation would come by the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman. In fact, we've traveled through the Old Testament in various studies and sermon series that pretty much the Old Testament is not just narratives of God's working in days gone by, it's tracing that seed of the woman. It's tracing the family line of the seed of the woman until in the fullness of time it comes through Jesus. And the New Testament picks up on this theme that Jesus is that seed. Galatians chapter 3. Paul says the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. He's speaking there of the prophecy of Genesis chapter 3. The point here, Jesus, truly divine, truly human. But let's go more. Let's be like that grandson. I want to know more. I want to know more. I love this one so much. Tell me more. Number three, the third point. We've already said Jesus is divine. We've said Jesus is human. Number three, Jesus is fully human and simultaneously fully divine. Fall on your knees. If you can hear that, and, and I mean, I, I go through, I can do it too, and just kind of, yep, I know that. We're not thinking about it. He is fully human and fully divine. Throughout church history, there have been three primary errors that have risen up, and they come in cycles with regard to Christology, with the study of Christ. Error number one is um, to deny the divinity of Christ, to deny that he's truly God. We'll affirm he was a man, but we deny he's God. Error number two is to deny the humanity of Christ. We will say he is God, but we deny that he is a human. He only appeared to be human. But he wasn't fully, he didn't really have all those emotions and didn't really have all the struggles that we have. That's a denial of the humanity. He appeared to be human, but he wasn't fully human. In this setting, I'm not as concerned about those. Um, to be a Christian, you have to affirm both things. Jesus is fully divine. Jesus is fully human. 
The very fact you profess to be a Christian, make, here's a great opportunity to make your calling and election sure. Have you deviated from that? Do you still affirm he is fully God and he is fully man? It's the third error that I think poses the greatest danger for Christians. And it's the danger, the error that we can say he's fully human, we can say he's fully divine, and then yet deny in one way or another the full humanity and the full deity of Jesus. What's difficult about this is no one does it intentionally. Nobody comes to a point to where I've been studying Scripture and I've decided Jesus isn't divine. Or I've been studying Scripture and I've decided theologically Scripture's pointing me he's not human. That's not how this happens. This happens by way of drift. This happens by way, it's, it doesn't happen intentionally. It's not being done in a culture of I'm studying Jesus and now I've arrived at this new theological position. It happens unintentionally by way of drift. And even when confronted with this, an individual probably, directly, an individual probably will deny it. But this is more on a practical level. On a practical level, we stumble into this error, and we do so for a variety of reasons. We're not walking as near to Jesus as we should. We're not clinging to Him. We're not um, looking unto Him in Scripture. And life circumstances or just things that happen begin to, you know, they pound upon your heart, they pound upon your mind, and little by little, your view of God begins to deteriorate. Your view of Jesus begins to deteriorate. And in one way or another, you begin to get frustrated with Jesus. If Jesus, if you're the almighty king, why did this happen? And now your view of his divinity begins to go a different direction. You see? It's more of a practical thing. He's God-ish, but not God. He's human-ish, but not human. We'll begin to drift away from right view of Jesus. And the difficult thing here is you can sit here on a Sunday and say, I affirm, I'm singing it. Jesus is fully divine and Jesus is fully human. But then you're going to leave here and live something else. Or you're going to show you believe something else, right? There are some of you this morning who with your lips would say, Jesus is fully divine. But if you look at your life, your heart, your worship, you don't treat him as such. All those things we've said about the glory of God, the majesty of God, the gravity of his nature, the beauty of his perfections. He's incomprehensible. He's unknowable, except that he reveals himself truly. You can't know him fully. You can know him truly. And if you found yourself stumbling over and overwhelmed by and frustrated by, he just seems so big, can I ever know him? Well, then if you're not having the same reaction to Jesus, you've drifted. Do you see? And when it comes to the humanity of Jesus, Jesus came in human form to, like Paul said, to, to, to become one with us. Sometimes you feel like no one knows what I'm going through. No one understands. And that's probably true. We've talked about this before. You get frustrated with friends or parents or grandparents or, or, or co-workers or somebody who, you know, they're, just, you're, they're giving you counsel and advice and you're like, just stop. You're, you're not listening. I'm trying to tell you. You don't get it. You don't understand. I know you intend well, but you're not understanding. And you begin to feel wallow in self-pity, right? You begin to think, nobody understands. Well, what is that? A denial of the humanity of Jesus. Because not only does he understand, he understands more than you do. It's you that don't understand. It's I who don't understand what he went through. Because where we fall, he kept going in obedience. He kept going in faithfulness. He went deeper into the suffering than you and I ever do. And if we find ourselves in despair and discouragement and, and feeling in self-pity, feeling nobody understands, that's a denial of the humanity of Jesus. That's apostasy. There's reason in that moment not just to say, oh, that's bad. There's reason to say, what is wrong in my soul? Have, have I drifted away from Christ as God's gift to me, the all in all, in all humanity? 
He knows it all. Like those little children in our kids' town this morning, run to him. Throw yourself onto him. Not because he's going to change everything. He might. That doesn't usually be how, uh, isn't usually how he works. But you're not alone. You're not in the darkness alone. You're not in the shadow of death alone. For thou art with me. Who's that one? It's God in flesh. I don't worry about, you just have to leave this to God, a denial of the full humanity, the full, what I worry about in my own soul and yours is this third error of an unintentional drift away from these realities in very practical ways. Practical ways that deny who he is. Jesus is fully God. He is fully man. Those two things are inseparably joined, eternally so. Even right now at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is in human form. He's mediating on your human behalf because why? He is human before the Spirit Father. He wasn't less human than he was divine. He wasn't less divine than he was human. You and I have to be persuaded that the majesty of the incarnation is that he was simultaneously fully God, the fullness of God, incomprehensible, and fully man who knows your weakness, who knows your struggles, who knows your needs better than you do. Two more things, very quickly. Number four, Jesus is one person. One person. He's not two. He didn't have a split personality. He didn't uh, sometimes divine, sometimes human. It didn't depend on the situation. He didn't cut himself in half and just depending upon the situation, I'll utilize this, that, or the other. One person. We said, we talked about the Father being simple. So too here, we're talking about kind of a similar thing. Christ is unified in his divinity and in his humanity. From time to time, one of those attributes or one of those natures, as you're looking at Jesus' life and ministry, you may see one more clearly than the other. But don't think that in that moment that that one has overshadowed the other. Do you hear what I'm saying? In that moment, it's not like, oh, well, here's the divinity, and he must be putting the humanity to the side right now. No. He ceases to be the God-man if that happens. In those moments where the, the Holy Spirit is exposing this aspect of his being, keep in mind the other one is right there in tandem with it. Always one person. And then finally, fifthly, the fifth thing to be said about Jesus is simply this. He is. He is. What we mean by that? He still exists now. He still exists now. Well, where is he now? We just sing about it. We're about to sing about it again. Where is he? He's exalted at the right hand of God. And what's he doing there right now? Romans tells us. Paul asks this question in Romans chapter 8. Who is to condemn? Who can condemn these humans? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. An interceder is what? A middleman, right? You have two different parties who can't get together. Spirit God, holy, righteous, perfect, unknowable, incomprehensible man. Created in the image of God, but unholy, unrighteous. Father doesn't need these. What's the hope of sinful man being reconciled to a holy God? The Father sends a middleman, a mediator, someone who is both divine and human to come together to mediate on our behalf night and day. Right now, when you sin, 
when you pray, when you repent before the Father. It is Christ who takes your prayers, who takes your confession, who takes your repentance to the Father and mediates on your behalf. Beloved, you and I are every bit as dependent upon Christ right now as we've ever been. The mediatorial work of Christ right now, it's Christ who sustains us, who makes sure that if we finish well, if we finish faithful to God and find our way into the celestial city, it's because Christ saved us and He who began the good work will see it through to completion. He's mediating on on our behalf, praying for us. We're seeing this in John chapter 17. Praying for us that God would keep us, protect us, spare us because of who He is, His person, and His work. And it's from that place of honor that one day the God-man will one day return, will one day come back to consummate that which was begun for the glory of God and the joy of His people. And who's in the middle of all this? Who is all this contingent upon? The God-man in his perfections, fully God, fully man. My objective in this message, again, is to try to set our minds in the right direction. We can't possibly say all there is to say about the nature of God, the perfections of God, or even about the person of Christ as we've tried to do today. My objective is to set our minds in the right direction. My suspicion is, though, that even as we talk about these things, there might be some in this room that are like, so much detail, so many specifics. Man, just let Jesus be. I know what I know, and I'm comfortable with that. To which I would say the details matter. I know we're, we live in a generation today, we don't like going line by line through a doctrinal statement and reading and evaluating, is this true, is it right? Are there repercussions of wrong? We don't necessarily live in a generation that enjoys the details and going through the specifics of Christology or theology or anthropology and so on and so forth. But why do we do so? Is it because some people are just bent that way and they're smart? No. It's because what you know in whatever your area of responsibility is, the details matter. And if you get away from the details, if you get away from the basics, it creates problem. You get, to some, you get to some other end, some other conclusion. That's not the right one. And so this morning, as we continue in our celebration of the incarnation of Christ, it is important that we understand the things this morning about Jesus, every one of them matter. If you get them wrong, You will find yourself in a wrong place, serving a wrong Jesus who cannot save. We say we love Jesus like the grandson says he loves the grandfather. But do we want to know him? Do we want to know him well? Do we understand who he is? Do we understand what he is? Well, understand this. It's these things we talked about today that make it possible for what we're going to talk about next week. What this person did. The majesty of the incarnation applied to the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth for our salvation.